Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 6, 12 through 19. If you're using a Worship Center Bible, please turn to page 862, left column, second full paragraph. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Great to be with you this morning. If you're a newcomer with us today, we're um, just in a little brief series that we do every year that allows us a few Sundays just to think through particular priorities that we have ahead of us over the coming year. We do this in the month of August because it's just before football season starts when most of our congregation disappears over the weekend. This little series is called Then the Glory, and those are words from Isaiah chapter 40 where the prophet looks ahead to the people of God being met by God in a new and renewing way. He says he's going to comfort them, and then he tells them to prepare the way. Prepare the way. In the wilderness, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He says, then the glory will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. We hear those words from the prophet Isaiah and we anticipate that God will come and make himself known. Though, admittedly, that's going to be in unexpected, unanticipated ways. When God did fulfill those words through Isaiah and he did reveal his glory in Jesus Christ, it was not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. And yet we did see his glory. John writes about it. He says, we saw his glory full of grace and truth. God's glory is full of those qualities, grace and truth. Both are married together perfectly in Jesus. And what he does is bring about a mission that not only heals and restores and salvages for all eternity individuals, but then, though that salvation is deeply personal, He brings people together into a very imperfect community of disciples, a community of faith, so that his glory, which is so perfectly seen in him, is also shown in the world through these people he's brought together around his presence. Today we want to talk about that particular focus. We want to talk about the glory of community. You and I were actually made for community. We were made, we were created for fellowship with one another. We were not made for isolation. Though post-enlightenment Western 
philosophical understanding emphasizes the role of the individual, it's important for us to know that biblically we are made in God's image. And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the old Puritans used to say, God is in himself a sweet society. God is a unified community of persons. And so when he makes us, he makes us as a people who image him by dwelling in community. Isolation and loneliness are not the way the kingdom is made manifest. You and I were made for healthy relationship and to be together. This is why solitary confinement is a punishment. You and I were fashioned for community together. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is that right now, in our culture, we have never been more technologically connected and never more relationally distorted. Uh, You and I are connected algorithmically, even if we don't know it. Our habits online, our discourse in those places are picked up by Google and a whole source, a whole a uh, whole, whole source of other super minds and collecting that data and connecting us in different ways. Some of that can be healthy and good. Some of it can be, as we've seen in our culture, dangerous and unhelpful. But those connections are real. Nevertheless, those connections, algorithmically, can lead us to a place where we leave our relationships in the realm of the virtual. And we cease connecting to each other personally. Our relationships consist of what we can do here. And so we actually go through life like this. And occasionally when we're going down the hallway like this, we actually collide with another person. I think that's the perfect metaphor for our life today. We are so attached to our screens, we are shocked when we actually bump into a real person. But God has called us into this relationship where we are together. And you can see it in this passage in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus first, he says spends the whole night in prayer with the Father. That's intimacy with God. And then out of that place of intimacy with God, he moves towards a large group of people, and he chooses 12 to form a community with them. So he moves from intimacy to community, and he chooses them. And the names are right there. It's a very interesting assortment of people. And then it says, he stood with them on a level place, and everyone who was in need of liberty... And healing came to him. And there in that place, within that community, ministry took place. So there was intimacy and community and ministry. And that pattern in the life of Jesus of intimacy with God, of community together, of ministry in the world, that methodology, if you will, is something which you and I need to be embraced by. We need this not only because it's Jesus' own methodology and genius, but because we live in a society that is increasingly marked by the kind of relational distortion and disconnection that overflows in what sociologists and healthcare experts are telling us is now a plague of loneliness. In his article in the Boston Globe, Billy Baker, a columnist there, wrote about Dr. Richard Schwartz, a Cambridge psychiatrist book, The Lonely American. And he noted that for men in particular, there is a dissolution of friendship 
relationships. Beginning in the 1980s, Schwartz says, study after study started showing that those who were more socially isolated were much more likely to die during a given period than their socially connected neighbors. Doctors have gone on to show, and Schwartz shows this in his studies, that social isolation, a lack of friendship, a lack of face-to-face relationship, is contributing to the early onset of Alzheimer's. It's contributing to suicide. That the greatest danger for health to men in this country between the ages of 40 and 50 is not smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. There are many factors, of course, which go into that. But God has called us into community to see the pain of loneliness and isolation actually healed. Now, this is not a comment on singleness. Many people are called to be single, but singleness is not the same thing as loneliness. There are people who are married and lonely. Now, we're talking about a bond that exists in people, whether married or single and at whatever age, in which the Holy Spirit unites people together. And, of course, the shape that that takes is very, very different. There was a very interesting study done at Oxford that I I, I noted in which um, the way in which men and women speak to one another, and it's seen in photographs, is recorded. And it shows what we really kind of know, that men, when we talk to each other, like to talk side to side like this. Because we like to face something. The way men typically bond, typically bond is over some kind of service project, doing something together, running towards something. So it's athletics, it's military, it's something like that where we're moving. And so we talk to each other like this. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Frank, I'm fine. How are you? Women, on the other hand, do not talk like this. Women talk like this, face to face. They prefer the face to face. And they're very happy just to sit down and face each other. If you take a group of men and you just say, we're all going to sit down and have a nice time together. They're going to go, ah, could we kill something and eat it uh, while we're doing that? We've got to do something. We can't just sit here like this and just face each other. Because honestly, look at this face. It's the perfect face for radio. Um, let's not do that. We all, we have these differences, you know. If, if a group of people are out to eat and a, a lady stands up and says, I need to go over to the ladies' room, it's not uncommon for a couple of other ladies to stand up and say, I'll go with you. But if a man stands up and says, I'm going to the restroom, another couple of guys standing up saying, hey, I'll go with you. That's kind of weird. Let's face it. So we relate in very, very different ways. The weirdness of the relationship is real, but the reality of the relationship is necessary. And you see it in this group of people that Jesus called together. You see, this is the grace of community. When you look at that list of people that Jesus called together, that list of people that Jesus called together, they were different. And they were imperfect. There was Simon, who Jesus called Peter. But it took a long time for Peter to become the rock that Jesus called him. He was a work in progress. One of the people in the group turned out to be a traitor, Judas Iscariot. It's not as though Jesus called into community everybody who was perfect, everybody who who would never fail. In fact, they were already abject failures, but there's more to it than that. They were also people who were not just different from each other, but potentially at each other's throats. You see, one of the things that happens in salvation is that God turns his enemies into his friends. 
He turns his enemies into his friends. And so it's not surprising that in the community that Jesus builds, the very same thing happens. We know this from a couple of names that are in that list. Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew, we learn in the gospel, was a tax collector, which is to say he was a bureaucrat of the Roman occupying force. That Roman occupying force was viewed in very negative terms. The Jews of the day wanted the Romans out of Jerusalem and out of Judea. And some of them were collaborators and some of them with the Romans and some of them were violently opposed to that occupation. So Matthew's a collaborator. Those who were opposed deeply to the Romans were called the zealots. The zealots wanted to put the Romans to death. They would operate in forms of guerrilla warfare. They would look to kill Roman soldiers and Roman officials and their fellow Jews who were collaborators with the Romans. So when it says Simon the zealot, it doesn't mean Simon the guy who was real excited in worship. It means Simon the guy who killed Romans and all who collaborate with them. And then sitting next to him is Matthew, the collaborating tax collector with the Romans. And Jesus took Matthew and Simon and said, I'm going to make you sit down together and be friends. And Simon, of course, would have said, oh, yeah, I would like some quiet time with Matthew. That would be nice. (laughs) You know, Matthew's like, well, I don't know if I want any fellowship around that guy. I don't want him to bring his knife to the small group. See, the fact of the matter is that real community is built by Jesus with people who are not only different from each other, but who might not have gotten along at at all. Orson Welles said, we're born alone, we live alone, we die alone. And he did. He fulfilled it. They found him in the morning with his typewriter propped up on his elephantine belly and his little dog yapping at his feet. But that does not have to be our destiny. I know that when you look around, you can kind of go, well, I don't know if I really want to be called into community. I'm not sure that I really want to have face-to-face with people. Have you been around people? Don't you know what they're like? Mark Twain said, the more I get to know people, the more I like my dog. And that's fine. I get it. But Twain said that. Twain was able to say that after eating a meal prepared by other people sitting in a house that other people built and funded by books that other people bought that he had written for them, never purchased by any dogs. So in fact, you and I are a people who do desperately need each other. And this is why, friends, you and I have to recognize that community is actually a gift. In his book, Life Together, it's one of my favorite books, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, it is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day could be taken away from us. He's writing during World War II. He was taken captive by the Nazis. He was killed in a death camp. And he notes that that gift of fellowship with people was so sweet that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore... Let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace 
nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with one another. You see, my friends, you and I have been given this remarkable gift. And so it's not surprising that when you open up the pages of the New Testament, what you find is a book of deep affection. You find people weeping over each other. You find people longing for each other. You find people celebrating the coming of each other into one another's lives. This means that you and I, as a community of Christians, are not permitted simply to say, it's just about Jesus and me. It's about how Jesus is revealed through us together. And we need each other simply to show ourselves to be fully who we are. This is brought out really beautifully in C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. There's a remarkable passage in this book in which he describes his friendship with his fellow Inklings. Now, the Inklings were literary figures in Oxford. They met every week at the Eagle and Child pub in St. Giles Street, and they'd share a pint, and they'd critique each other's literary works. People like Charles Williams and J.R. Tolkien and Lewis and Lewis's brother and so on, Warney. And there were other figures that moved in and out among them. And they were deep friends. Charles Williams is one of the lesser-known inklings, but he was a very able scholar. And after his death, after his death, Lewis noted the change that his absence created in their community. Lewis heard somebody say, Now that Charles is gone, maybe you'll have a little bit more of Tolkien because you won't have to share him with Charles. It turned out that the opposite was in fact true. Lewis writes, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having more of him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of all loves. He goes on to say, that this friendship which we're given is a resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no one can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul seeing him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest, and that is why the old author in the Scriptures says the angels cry out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's not just you see that the angels are there saying, holy. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. They cry out to one another unto the Lord. Heaven is a community. God is a community. Jesus came not simply to seize and win and take individuals for himself, but to Build them, as Peter writes, into a spiritual community of praise and glory. The prophet Zechariah looked ahead and he called this, he called this a city of villages. A city of villages. 
Now, what does that mean, a city of villages? Well, in every great metropolitan area, there are smaller units. In every large church, there are smaller units. A city of villages means that if, for instance, you are from the Nashville area and you're visiting someone, say, in Portland, you run into some people and they say, well, where are you from? You might say Franklin, but not really knowing if they're familiar with the area, you're probably going to say, well, Nashville. But if you meet somebody from Nashville and they say, where are you from? You're going to probably say Franklin. And if you run into somebody in Franklin and they say, now, now where are you from? You're probably going to start talking about your neighborhood. You see, we have these smaller units, and it's in these smaller units, it's in the village life, the shared life that we have together, that we actually begin to experience the growth of community. Growth. You see, God has designed us to grow and change, and we need each other for that. Not only because we're encouraging each other on, but because we're taught the disciplines of maturity. The Benedictines talk about particular disciplines that they have in community. I don't have time to go into all of them, but let me just mention a couple. The, the discipline of how we handle speech and the discipline of how we greet the stranger. First of all, the discipline of speech. In a real smaller village life community, you have to sit there and listen to what people have to say. In a big group, you're all just kind of singing together, shouting together, how you doing? Fine, great. But in a smaller setting, there's a compelling issue that says inside of you, I must, I must listen closely. Guys, if your wife says to you this afternoon, honey, there is a dead possum in the front yard. That is not simply sharing information. No, 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 no. You are being called to a deeper listening. The deeper listening, the mystery behind her words is translated this way. Get it out in the front yard and move the dead possum. And if your response to her when she says there's a dead possum in the front yard is, huh? Or did you shoot it? What? Then you are not listening deeply. You have not yet discovered the joy of community. But she will help you. When we actually are face-to-face, when we dwell together, we grow. And then there's the way we meet the stranger, because here's the interesting thing about the community of the Trinity. The community of the Trinity wasn't a closed community. The Trinity of the community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, said we want to bring people in. We want to welcome people into our community. So the Father said in all eternity, I'm going to, Son, I'm going to make a bride for you. And the Son said, I'll go and die for her and show her how much I love her. And the Spirit said, I'm going to come and show all the world how great that is. And I'm going to apply that loving sacrifice to hearts. And I'm going to fashion that bride for you. And we're going to bring that bride into the dance that we have together. And that, bened- that quality of welcoming the stranger has been part of that Benedictine community. They're taught when there's a knock on the door, run to the door because it could be Jesus at the door. That's how you welcome the stranger. And of course, it is Jesus at the door. Jesus does come to us. He comes to us through unexpected ways. Bill Lane was always saying that when God wants to send you a gift, he wraps it in a person. And that's exactly right. But sometimes that person doesn't look like what we think Jesus looks like. But how we welcome them, how we handle the marginalized, how we handle the people that nobody else wants, how you wash the feet of the people you weren't expecting, 
That's where the real growth happens. And it leads to the glory of community. What is glory? Glory is the manifest presence. It's the witness that takes place. Because what we're able to do in community is preach the gospel to each other and then through that community share the gospel in other lives. Tim Keller put it this way. Community itself is one of the main ways we do outreach and discipleship. The real secret of effective mission in the world is the quality of our community. To embody a counterculture, giving the world an opportunity to see people united in love. You see, the world expects a particular approach to money, which is greed. The world expects a particular approach to sex, which is utilitarian. The world expects a particular approach to power, which is dominance. But all three of those are turned on their head within the Christian community so that in terms of money, we're generous. In terms of human sexuality, rather than being fearful traditionalists or modern licentious people, we actually receive it as a great gift within a covenant, within a covenant bond. And when it comes to power... Rather than using power to herd people in the direction that we want, we find ourselves living as servants on behalf of others. And we do this not just in the church, but as the church in the world. And we call people into that life of the Trinity. When you and I bear witness to this, we become a different kind of church. You see, there's really two kinds of churches. There are Velcro churches and Teflon churches. Churches will have people come to them. They come because of the music or they come because of the message or whatever it is. They come. But if it's a Teflon church, people hit it and slide right off. But a Velcro church will be a church that when people arrive, there's some stuff for them to stick to. And over the next year, we've got to ask the Lord to do something deeply Trinitarian among us. To create those places where people connect. Right now, we're not there. Oh, there are some connecting places. But we got a long way to go. You see, what happened in Jerusalem was this. This was the witness. They were together, and it says they they took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They praised God in the temple, the big meeting, but also house to house in that smaller village setting. And then it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A few years later... Paul came to Jerusalem and James said to him, you see how many tens of thousands have believed? Tens of thousands. Why? Well, it wasn't just because there was a big meeting. It's because, yes, there was a city, but it was a city of villages where people learned to love. And it is there that they grew in faith and grace. Let's pray that God does that among us. Pray with me. Lord, I need my brothers and sisters in this church to preach the gospel to me. We need to do that for each other. Lord, please work among us by your grace that we will not be a Teflon people, but a Velcro people, people where those you bring can be brought together, built together, 